Our scripture reading today is from 1 Samuel 1, 1 through 8. There was a man named Elkanah who lived in Ramah in the region of Zeph in the hill country of Ephraim. He was the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zeph of Ephraim. Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Penina. Penina had children, and Hannah did not. Each year, Elkanah would travel to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of Heaven's armies at the tabernacle. The priests of the Lord at that time were the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. On the days Elkanah presented his sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to Penina and each of her children. And though he loved Hannah, he would only give her one choice portion, because the Lord had given her no children. So Penina would taunt Hannah and make fun of her because the Lord had kept her from having children. Year after year, it was the same. Penina would taunt Hannah as they went to the tabernacle, and each time, Hannah would be reduced to tears and would not even eat. Why are you crying, Hannah? Elkanah would ask. Why aren't you eating? Why be downhearted just because you have no children? You have me. Isn't that better than having ten sons? The word of the Lord. Husbands, do you ever feel like you don't know what to say and you don't know what to do when your wife is crying? <laughs> Turns out that's been going on for thousands of years. And I honestly don't think it's just a guy thing. I sometimes have trouble with big emotions as well. So we're going to dig into this story this morning and see what we can learn from this very specific family. When the book of 1 Samuel opens up, this is who we meet right out of the gate, a man named Elkanah who has two wives, or Elkanah. Uh, all of a sudden, her name just left me. <laughs> who just read our scripture? Carolyn, can you believe it? I'm so sorry. Her name just went out of my brain, but uh, she did such a great job with all the Hebrew names. She does it beautifully, so thank you. Thank you for that. So this uh, man named Elkanah has two wives, and I'm going to just call her Penny and Hannah, okay? It's just easier for me. El uh, Penny has given Elkanah multiple children, but Hannah, year after year after year, has suffered with the ache of not being able to bring forth a child, in my 30s, in this very church, I had a really good friend, and she and I had our firstborn sons the very same week. We actually met when we were about seven months pregnant, had our babies the same week in May, and about a year into that, both couples started talking about, okay, we're ready to have that second baby, right? And so my friend got pregnant immediately, and I was waiting month after month after month, and she gave birth, and I was still waiting. It would be 18 months since, since the time that we started talking about having a second child until I held that second baby in my arms. Some women, some couples, maybe you know this on a very personal level, go way longer than a few months waiting. 
you've gone years, maybe you have not had that child, and you know personally what Hannah is experiencing on a guttural level. Just my taste of that many months of waiting just gave me compassion for those who wait. In the culture of Penny and Hannah, having children or not having children was complicated on a whole nother level. Today, we as women uh, discover self-expression and develop self-confidence and have numerous ways to support ourselves. But in that day, so almost everything for a woman relied upon her ability uh, to have a child or to not have a child. There were so many components to it. There was a spiritual component. Children were seen as a blessing from God. And if a woman was not able to get pregnant and bear children, she became suspect. What is wrong with her? There was a financial component. Children were needed in agrarian society to work the fields, to shepherd the sheep, to tend uh, the vineyards. And that's actually been true in so many parts of the world until the last 50 or 60 years ago. My own dad had to quit grade school at six, or quit school at sixth grade due to working on the farm to be able to produce enough for the family to be able to thrive. In Hannah and uh, Penny's day, there was a status component. In so many ways, sons were the pride and the joy of a father. And daughters were often married to make alliances with other families and tribes and nations. Then there was the emotional component of a couple who longed to just have a child from their love for each other and their love of children. I get that not every woman feels that way, but when a a couple is longing for that child, it can become so, so painful. Now, uh, Elkanah could solve his problem in the equation. He just took another wife. Yeah. Penny probably knew, though, that uh, he really loved Hannah, and he married her for just a very practical purpose. And so perhaps that's where that mean-spiritedness was born in Penny toward Hannah that uh, she would poke and be so mean with her taunting relentlessly toward Hannah. Every year, Elkanah would take the whole family to Shiloh to worship and to sacrifice. Shiloh is mentioned in the scriptures 31 times. It was so significant, but it's kind of gotten lost through history. But it was the capital, the place for the promised land And for the children of Israel, it was the heart of where the tabernacle of God was for 369 years. And the Israelites would travel there year after year. And Elkanah, like every other family, would take his family and travel there to worship and sacrifice to this God who we see in this chapter called the Lord of heaven's armies. That's actually the first time we ever see that name of God used. Here it's first used by the narrator. We're going to circle back to that name in a little bit because Hannah, it's the name she uses for God 
in her prayer in a little bit. This trip to Shiloh every year seemed to be the time when Penny could really patronize and poke at Hannah. Just think about it. Traveling usually means really close quarters, right? Think about going on a long road trip stuck in a car with someone who really doesn't like you and is going to take every opportunity they can to make your life miserable. That was Hannah's story. So every year, Hannah was reduced to mega tears. And this time, I mean, this has gone on year after year after year, and she's done. She's so burnt out emotionally. And she is distressed to the point she doesn't even eat on this trip. So enter said husband who does not know what to say or what to do for the woman that he loves. And he begins kind of asking her question after question. He says, Hannah, why are you crying? Why aren't you eating? Why be downhearted just because you can't have children? No, never mind that he's had children from another woman at this point, but why are you so downcast? And then, uh, can I just give a little hint, gentlemen? When your wife is crying, do not pester her with questions, okay? <laughs> shush, shush, shush. <laughs> just wait. Let her cry. And when she's ready, then you can hold her if, she's, if she wants that. But Elkanah keeps going after all of those questions, and he says, Hannah, you have me. Isn't that better than 10 sons? Yeah, I hear the crying level go up in the room right at that point. I think, where is Rick Warren when you need him who says, it is not all about you? <laughs> oh, well, let's join them in that moment. The crying level has gone up and life goes on. This trip continues. They're still there. And then we read this. This begins in verse 9 of Samuel 1. Once after a sacrificial meal at Shiloh, Hannah got up and went to pray. Eli the priest was sitting at his customary place beside the entrance of the tabernacle. Hannah was in deep anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. And she made this vow, and here's that name again. O Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime, and as a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. As she was praying to the Lord, Eli watched her, and seeing her lips moving but hearing no sound, he thought she had been drinking. Must you come here drunk, he demanded. Throw away your wine. Oh, no, sir, she replied. I haven't been drinking wine or anything stronger but I am very discouraged. And I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. Don't think I'm a wicked woman, for I have been praying out in great anguish and sorrow. In that case, Eli said, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant the request you have asked of him. Thank you, sir, she exclaimed. And then she went back and began to eat again, and she was no longer sad. We're in a series this summer called Pray. The last three weeks, we've looked at prayer more from the perspective of, of coming home, 
as a place where you can kick off your shoes and you can be who you really are, know that you're loved and accepted in that place and have the deepest, most raw conversations or the most joyful and easygoing conversation that you need to have. That's prayer. We've talked about it. Uh, Mike and John both did a great job talking about prayer as being a friend of God. We talk with our friends. And is it not astounding that both God and Jesus would refer to followers as their friends? That's who, who God invites us into relationship with, with himself as a friend. This next three weeks, today and the next two, we will be looking at some prayer from a little different perspective. We're going to look at Israelite prayers. We're going to look at the prayers of ancient Hebrew culture and see what we can learn from the ancients that might speak to our prayer life today. As we look at Hannah's story, by Hebrew storytelling standards throughout the Old Testament, the description of the level of distress that Hannah is experiencing is very detailed. Elkanah notes that she's downhearted. The narrator describes her as bitter of soul. Hannah herself says she is in distress, she is in misery, she is deeply troubled, in great anguish and grief. Wow. Those are big emotions. Those are emotions that can swallow us whole if God does not intervene. She's at the end of her tether in desperate straits. And in this particular part of the story, Hannah steps away from being acted upon by others, acted upon by her husband, Elkanah, who we know means well, steps away from him, his questions. She steps away from Penny, who is relentless like water dripping torture in her taunts that Hannah cannot have children. And she gets up from the table because she recognizes there is no other helper, there's no other recourse but Yahweh and goes to the tabernacle to pray. The names for God used in these prayers is a significant part of ancient Hebrew culture. Hannah addresses God with this unique name first seen here in the book of Samuel. We will see it again and again as scripture goes forth, but this is new. And the original Hebrew name is Yahweh or Jehovah Elohim Sabah. And we translate it in about three different ways, but they all come with the same kind of, of, of meaning. We translate it Lord of Heaven's armies or Lord of hosts or the Lord Almighty. And the, the word host means army. Jehovah, in other words, leads the army of God. He, he got, it is God is always in the lead of power. We will come to see it used to indicate that God is over armies that are physical, but not just physical, but spiritual and even celestial. This name emphasizes God as the one who has immense power at his disposal which he willingly will bring to bear on behalf of his people. Hebrew prayers use the name of God that emphasize the part of God's character they most need in that moment. 
And that is what we see Hannah doing. She is asking God to powerfully move in her circumstances on her behalf. And the name she chooses asserts that she knows who he is and that she knows he can do this thing that she's asking him for. Her people have witnessed God act powerfully again and again in their history. This Lord of Heaven's armies delivered them from slavery in Egypt and in, in unbelievable ways with unbelievable results. They don't just get released and sneak out the door. No, they march out as a people and they not only leave, they leave with all the wealth of Egypt with them. This is a mighty God that leads his people. They have watched the Lord of heaven's armies cause the walls of Jericho to come down. They have watched the Lord of heaven's armies come against Israel's enemies, even when it looked like they were absolutely doomed to destruction. And they were if God Almighty had not intervened. Again, the Lord of heaven's armies is a God of immense power at his disposal, and he is willing to bring it to bear in the lives of his people. God must in some ways rejoice when we finally come to the end of our tether. Not because God ever, ever delights in our pain or anyone else's pain, but so often in that moment when we kind of come to the end of our tether is when we do what Hannah did. We get up and we go and we call out to him. In other words, at that moment, we do what God designed us to do, which is put our full dependence on him. To call out to God as the helper of the helpless. That's what we are designed to do, and the God who's willing and able to bring his power brings his power. How many times do we say when uh, everything else that we've tried and every other resource has been exhausted, well, there's nothing left to do but pray? <laughs> and God says, well, finally, <laughs> finally. You know, Hannah faced tension everywhere. She has escaped for the moment the tension with Elkanah and Penny for just a moment to come and pray to her God. But even here, in a place where she should have been safe, she encounters tension with Eli the priest. He assumes in her crying out to God and her intense prayer, he somehow assumes that she's drunk. Now, had Hannah, or had he witnessed a lot of drunk women coming to pray? I don't know. Just kind of comes out of left field, it feels like. Until we remember that they are in a patriarchal society. And women in a patriarchal society often have an uphill battle even in the church. Ask Beth Moore. <laughs> there can be a quick suspicion of behavior and motive that men do not face in the church. 
I will never forget um, the battles, and I'm glad I faced them early. I went to a small Bible college in Houston, Texas, and I'll never forget, I could tell you many stories, but I'm going to share this one. I... I love studying the Word of God. I fell in love with God's Word as a teenager, and I couldn't wait to dig in. I think this is my sophomore year, junior. This is an upper-level class. It was on the Old Testament. I loved it. And I went up after class to ask the prof about a certain section of Scripture, and he listened to my question, and then he looked at me and he said, you know, wouldn't you just rather get married and have babies than go into the ministry? Well, thanks, Dr. Eubanks, but with God's help, I managed to do both. (laughs) So Hannah stands up for herself, respectfully disagreeing with Eli's assessment. She doesn't want him thinking ill of her. Who does? None of us. None of us. I wanted my professors to like me, to think I was doing a good thing, and they didn't, and that's just... I had to disrespectfully, or not, sorry, I had to respectfully disagree (laughs) and keep going (laughs) on my path. (laughs) Well, we could ask him his opinion. (laughs) Oh, but Hannah does stand up for herself, and she, she just tells him, I'm not drunk. Don't think evil of me. I thought of our, one of our staff values around here is to always think well of the other person. When you don't know their story, when you don't know why they're acting a little off or something's not right, don't assume the worst. You know, Eli did not assume the best of Hannah in that moment. But she tells him, I'm so discouraged. I came here just to cry out to God. And Eli, you know, steps back, affirms her request and pronounces a blessing on her that God would give her what she has asked for. After this guttural prayer that she has just kind of snot cried all over the altar, she goes out and she is fully restored in her spirit. She, uh, she's not sad any longer. She, her appetite returns. And you have to just kind of step back and wonder what changed for Hannah in that moment? You know, why did she go from this, where the way she's been on this trip to that to this place of of doing much better. Did she give up her longing for a child? Did she give that over to the Lord? Or did she walk away fully believing that the God that she had just called upon is powerful and loving? And maybe she, in that moment, felt absolutely sure that God was going to answer her prayer in the affirmative. We really don't know. It could could be either, either way. But God does grant Hannah's request. And she names that baby's son Samuel, meaning I asked the Lord for him. Last week, Mike mentioned some of the phrases of Jesus that he struggles with in the Gospels. Those phrases where Jesus tells us, ask for whatever you want using my name. There's that importance of name again. And I'll give you whatever it is that you ask. Boy, we haven't all experienced that, have we? And we wrestle, we wrestle hard with our emotions, and sometimes we wrestle hard with our faith when our prayers are answered differently than 
the way we have prayed. Maybe this morning that's your story. You didn't get the child. Your loved one didn't get healed. Your spouse left. You lost the job that you loved. Please know that you're not alone. Please know that God sees you, that God is for you, that God is with you. Most of us will face that kind of pain, that kind of struggle and tension somewhere in our lifetime. Because prayer is like coming home, know that you can tell God just how much it hurts. Were Hannah's struggles over when she gave birth to Samuel? No, they never really are over. Thank God the intensity of our lives and our struggles changes from time to time, but Jesus told us, in this life you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. In other words, you will have pain and trouble in this life, but I will have the final word for you, and it will be a good word. If you read the rest of chapter 1, it's possible that Hannah struggled a bit to follow through with her commitment to give this child to serve God for the rest of his days. Elkanah told her to do what she felt was right, and eventually, once the child was weaned, she was able to bring Samuel back to Shiloh and leave him there in the care of, of the priests and those there to serve the Lord. She would go on to have more children, and every year the family would come to worship. She would make Samuel a little coat and be able to present it to this little boy and then this young man as time went on. This familial pain, this conflict of years and years and years, and then Hannah's follow-through on the commitment she had made all of it helped set the stage for a little boy to grow up to become one of the most significant prophets of Israel's history. There's a very old saying that says, I think it was, uh, somebody helped me look it up and I can't remember the guy's name who said it, but there's a saying that uh, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. In other words, God has given women such influence, even within cultures who structure it differently. I love that. God's not stopped by that. God gives power, and we hopefully receive it humbly, reverently, and yet with confidence to step out and influence our world. The day Hannah left Samuel at the tabernacle, she prayed this prayer of praise to her God. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read it to us this morning, but you can open it. It's chapter 2, and you can highlight those first, or you can look at it as I highlight a few things from those first 10 verses. In 10 verses, Yahweh is mentioned by name nine times. And he is the subject of incredible array of verbs. He knows, he brings death, makes alive, brings down, raises up, sends poverty and wealth, humbles, exalts, raises, lifts, sets, sets, 
seats, guards, shatters, thunders, judges, and gives strength. Wow, what a list of things that she gives God praise for. Hannah's faith is in the God who acts on behalf of his people with the power at his disposal. He's involved. And she knows it. He sees them. He sees their struggles. He sees their enemies. And by the way, nobody gets by with ugly forever. Penny, Dr. Eubanks, nobody gets by with ugly forever. And that's what she says in these 10 verses. Watch out because God will have the final word. We see in this prayer what we looked at last Advent called the great reversals. That when God steps in, there were going to be some who are wealthy who are going to go to poverty and some who are in poverty are going to go to wealth. There, God uh, reverses death and life and, and poverty and, and rulers. He takes people from the ash heap and puts them on the throne of honor. And these reversals are a theme in Israelite prayers. We see it again and again and again. We see it in the prayer of Moses and Miriam in Exodus. We see it in that of Deborah and Barak from Judges 5. We see it in the Magnificat in Luke 1 from the mother of Jesus. Israelite prayers proclaim that God is sovereign over all human existence. Today, on the other hand, sometimes we are so careful about the way we pray. That's not all bad, but neither is it all good. We want to make sure that our prayers are theologically sound. We want to make sure they don't offend and truth be told, I think we don't want to pray prayers that overpromise and underdeliver. And we're worried about that. Truth be told. We're knowledgeable today of ways that people try to manipulate God in prayer, and we don't want to do that. We're we're aware of people who almost hold God hostage with a name it or claim it type of prayer. I envision that as, I'm going to grin and bear this and smile until you give me what I want, God. We don't want to do that. So in the middle of it all, in the awareness of ways we can do prayer wrong, perhaps we've over-sanitized our prayers. We've become too careful about our prayers. I wonder if our Israelite friends like a Deborah or a Hannah or a Moses could hear us praying today, would they label our prayers milk toast, anemic, timid, unassertive, trying too hard to make them perfect? Whew. What if we prayed more raw, gut-wrenching prayers like Hannah's. Some snot-cry prayers. And we let God sort out how to answer our imperfectly worded prayers 
from broken but yet honest hearts. Hannah names her problem. She's childless. And then she names the solution she wants. She wants to have a child. And she asked Jehovah Elohim Sabah, the Lord of heaven's armies, the Lord Almighty, to give her a son. And she does this not in a religiously correct, sanitized way, but in a cry of desperate emotion. And I know some of you in here have prayed those prayers, even very recently. In Hannah's case, God answers her with a resounding yes. Commentator Andrew Reed writes of this portion of scripture. He said, with these things in mind, it is a great wonder that we do not call upon God more often as his dependent children. There are no guarantees that he will answer our cries as he did with Hannah, but he does promise that as our heavenly father, he loves to listen and give good gifts to those who seek him. That's from the words of Jesus. We talked about that three weeks ago when Jesus said, if you, as you sinners, you, if you people know how to give good gifts, don't you think your father in heaven even more knows how and longs to give you good gifts? Hannah grasped that God is both loving and powerful. One of my favorite uh, verses is in Psalm 62, 11 through 12. It says, one thing God has spoken, two things have I heard. Power belongs to you, O God, and you, Lord, and with you, O Lord, is unfailing love. Some generations focus so much on power and might that we forget to communicate that God is love. And some generations, the pendulum swings, and we concentrate so much on the loving aspect of God that we forget to ever communicate that God is also a God of power. God is both. God is the Lord of heaven's armies. Great power is at his disposal, and he is willing to bring it to bear on behalf of his children. God is both love and power all the time in every generation. As a way to bring this particular sermon into our prayer life this week, I'm going to offer a, a suggestion that you look at a resource. Maybe you have one on yourself already or you haven't looked at them in a long time. Here's an easy, free one for you to grab off of, of the internet. Navigators. Dot com have a resource called Praying the Names and Attributes of God. Just go on. It's free. You can look at it. It's just another way. We've talked about breath prayers the last three weeks. We've welcomed God. We've acknowledged who God is. And now this one just gives you another tool in your prayer toolbox of ways to powerfully use God's name in prayer. Maybe it's not God's power this morning that resonates with you. That's not what you're needing. But you feel really, really alone in your situation. Maybe you need to know that God is also the God who sees you. And it was another desperate woman named Hannah in the wilderness that gave God that name. She was Sure, she was going to see her own death and that of her son, but God saw her 
And God rescued both her and her son, and she gave him the name Elroy. And Elroy means the God who sees. Maybe you need provision in your life, and I don't mean just financial. It could be financial, absolutely. A lot of us need that time to time in our lives. Maybe you need God's strength. Maybe you need God's health. Whatever it is, the name of God, Jehovah Jireh, is the name that means God is my provider. Maybe that's the name of God you need a hold of this morning. So many people struggle with anxiety these days. And when the ancients would be in an anxious situation or an anxious moment, they would cry out for Jehovah Shalom, which means God, my peace. This week I heard somebody say, well, they've come up with a brand new name for God called Jehovah Sneaky. Because she experienced God's movement so often in her life in surprising and unexpected and good ways that she now calls him Jehovah Sneaky. (laughs) At Gethsemane, the night that Jesus was betrayed, he prayed a heart-wrenching blood and sweat producing prayer that God the Father would remove a cup of suffering he was about to face. It was a whole person prayer. Heart, mind, soul, body crying out to the Father, to his Abba. And he told God exactly what he wanted. Please take this from me. I don't want it. But And then he relinquished his request that God the Father might have the final best word in this situation. He said, this is what I want, but I want what you want. To relinquish what we want most in life, whether it's a child or a healing, to relinquish that into God's hand and trust God to have the very best answer is the pinnacle of maturity. But it doesn't prevent us from first crying out for exactly what we want. We are invited. It is modeled again and again and again in Scripture. Cry out for what you want. And then trust me with it. Some of us don't get the same answer that Hannah did, the child. We don't get the healing. One of our tough, we walked through that as a body this week when we didn't get the healing that we prayed for, but it didn't stop us from praying for it. And Eva and I were chatting just before service, and uh, some of you won't know her uh, son-in-law, Jim Mugg, passed away this week, and uh, we agreed there can be both peace and deep pain. Peace, we trust God with it. And deep pain at the same time because we, we hurt. Those two things do not contradict each other. They come together in our life so often. As we go to prayer this morning, maybe you've been sitting here thinking of something that you, I hope you have. I hope we're not so sanitized even with our own emotions and our own hearts that we don't even go there anymore. 
I invite you to think, what is it that your heart is just aching for this morning? If God stood before you and God does stand before us and asks, what is it that I can do for you? What would you say? What do you want most? And then I encourage us to not be afraid to use his name. Jehovah Elohim Sabah, God of heaven's armies, almighty God. A God willing to use his power on behalf of his people. Let's pray together. Our loving God, we have so much to learn about, about prayer. It just never runs out. And thank you for that. You are, you are the source of all that is powerful, all that is good when we talk about power. We often see it so abused, but it is not with you. It is brought on behalf of bringing good for people. And so we cry out to you this morning. We want to learn more and more about walking with you in friendship, being at home with you, being who we are, be able to pray a guttural prayer and know that we will be held, or to pray a prayer of joy and laughter and know that we are laughed with and accepted and enjoyed. Keep teaching us, Lord. We need you. We love you. Amen.